Hey, Mike Palmer here. We're about to pick up with a regular episode of Trending in Education, where I interview Dr. April Willis from the National Virtual Teachers Association, which is an interesting conversation about online learning. But prior to that, I just wanted to make note of the fact that the Capitol riot happened and many of the issues that we've been tracking on the show, particularly around civic engagement and media literacy and disinformation and fake news, all those things certainly came to a head. And those are trends that we're going to continue to track here on Trending in Education. And with that, let's pick up with my conversation with April. Mike Palmer here, very pleased to be joined today by Dr. April Willis, who's doing some interesting work around virtual instruction. She's part of an association that is helping virtual instructors figure out how to navigate uh, the new world that we're in. But rather than me talk about that, I'd love to hear April talk more about that. So April, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Yeah. And uh, what's the exact name of your association? We are the National Virtual Teacher Association. We also go by NVTA. NVTA. I was going right there. I like my (laughs) acronyms. I like my initialisms. So the name is pretty intuitive. National Virtual Teachers Association. See, I remembered it. (laughs) Before we get into that, I'd like to get to know you first. We typically begin by getting to know the origin story of our guests, uh, what got them to where they are in their career. And then from there, that's a nice jumping off point into what NBTA is up to these days. I hear you have a book coming out. Uh, But before we get to that, who are you and how did you get to this point in your career as a learning professional? Sure. Uh, I feel very fortunate in the path of my career trajectory so far. So I have been in education my entire career. I've started off teaching uh, kindergarten through third grade at a charter school that was serving students who were escaping sexual and domestic violence. So they were with me anywhere from 24 hours to six weeks at a time. My classroom was literally kinder through third grade. So Mm -hmm. I had four grade levels all at once, all day Mm -hmm. long, 16 preps a day. I did that for five years. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a very rewarding experience. While I was there, I was working on my first master's degree. And so I have two master's degrees, both in education, one's in curriculum and instruction, one's in educational leadership, went on to earn a doctorate in educational leadership as well. Mm -hmm. Then I got my third degree as an MBA because I recognized that a lot of my educational leaders that I looked up to, as amazing as they were in curriculum, instruction, and pedagogy, didn't oftentimes have the business background that I think would have really helped propel them to the next level. And that's where I saw myself going. So I decided I need to get that business background as well. I went from working for that charter school district as a teacher, I was able to move up pretty quickly, made my way to the state level where I was supporting low performing schools all across the state of Texas. So we would go do a lot of the stuff in those classrooms and those districts with those school board members, with the district administrators, all of the strategic planning behind it, the observational work, just training them and how they could improve what they were providing to students across Texas. That was also, again, really rewarding work. I went back to a district level though for another charter where I was director of business operations. I then had the amazing opportunity to join National Virtual Teacher Association as the director of business operations Mm -hmm. so that I could continue work, not just statewide, but now on a national level and supporting the teachers across our country and able to providing the best education that every single student across the country deserves. So that's what I'm excited to do now. Yeah, that's awesome. We talk a lot about how teachers are frontline workers and they have been 
very much on the front lines of the response to the pandemic. And 2020 has been a very difficult, challenging year for all of us, and then teachers in particular. If I understand what you and your organization are, are focusing on now, it's really trying to provide teachers and the fact that you began as one and really stayed within education throughout your career, you, you understand what they're going through to some extent this year. And then you began some courses over the summer to begin to help teachers who maybe didn't have as much experience teaching virtually, starting to navigate that jump. Can you explain a little what this year has been like? And it sounds like you've run several cohorts of instructors through this training and you're continuing to develop it over time. That's right. So this all started because we knew that virtual instruction was something that was going to continue to grow over time. We already have seen the impact. This is pre-COVID. We were seeing what was happening in higher ed with the increase in numbers of adults who were going back to school, the increase in opportunities for people to continue furthering their education without physically being in the classroom. So the higher ed level, this has been an established trend that we were seeing people at higher levels every single year enrolling in the virtual instruction world for higher ed. P12 world was starting to also see a slow but steady increase. So this was recognized a few years ago. That's when the team started developing this work. Well, then COVID happened, and now most educators were hurled into the virtual classroom with little to no formal training and by no choice of their own, not just in America, but globally. So we saw 183 different countries across the globe go to 90% or more virtual learning during the COVID um, pandemic. And so we were like, wow, we no longer have time to polish this and turn this into something that we will eventually release when we feel like it was an appropriate time. It has to come out now. So yeah. that is when it was all hands on deck everybody threw themselves into this feet first for sure. And we were like, we are going to establish something that is going to change the face of virtual learning in a time when our country needs it the most. What we recognize that there is no previous common knowledge or language or standard set among educators across district states or the country, but we also knew that every single child deserves a high quality education. And it doesn't matter if their school district could afford to pay for it for their teachers. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. It doesn't matter what privileges different kiddos were coming to the board with. Every single child deserves a high quality education. And we looked at this as an opportunity to be able to provide that for them by instructing teachers on how to bring their best selves to the computer every yeah. single day. Yeah. Uh, so essentially our vision is to create a world where virtual teaching is as good as or more effective than in-person instruction. And that's what we think we're doing right now, starting with the book. Yeah, and uh, I think you mentioned it's focused on P through 12 and also higher ed, but a lot of the lessons learned are broadly applicable. Can you describe some of the differences? You taught K through three very different population if you're thinking about a virtual experience versus an adult or someone pursuing a graduate degree. Can you talk about some of those differences? Absolutely. I'd like to also draw people's attention that the book is basically, it's going through narratively the set of rubrics that we've established and those rubrics say that this is best practice for the virtual environment, regardless of if you're P12, higher ed, or even in the corporate training world. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at the book, it's divided into five sections, just like the rubrics are, and those rubrics are available for free download, because again, we want that common language out to everybody as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about the difference of what P12 and higher ed look like, a couple of major ones that come to mind right off the top of my head would be uh, classroom management. If you have P through third grade on your computer, your classroom management strategy, 
strategies are going to have to look very different than they do in person and especially very different than if you're dealing with adults so i think that's probably one of the biggest ones so of course if that's not applicable to you you can skip that section (laughs) if you were like we don't need to spend a lot of time on that say okay Um, i think another one might be when we talk about the virtual learning environment in terms of teacher affect what the background looks like of course you can use that to enhance your learning but it can become a little less important for for higher ed than it is for p12 kiddos are going to need to see their teachers faces they're going to need to see them engaged and happy to be there they're also going to want to make the most of their virtual background so Mm -hmm. your p12 groups are probably going to be using whiteboard backgrounds more frequently your higher ed group they're more independent learners they probably don't care as much if the structure comes and they don't look their best or Mm -hmm. there's just so much more going on behind the scenes for higher ed than there is in the actual face-to-face instruction although there are still professional practices and responsibilities that again apply to everybody across the board and we do discuss all of those as well in the book and the rubrics yeah yeah another thing that has come up a lot this year is the role of parents in (laughs) the educational experience particularly this year as more students are taking their classes from their homes their parents are frequently right there with them when they're going through the instruction any perspective on that? I, I know over your career, I'm sure you've had many different interactions with parents as stakeholders, but it does feel like this year, there may be a bit of an inflection point in terms of the, the level to which parents are, are being pulled in and some are really engaging. Absolutely. I think the best way to address that is when you are establishing those relationships up front. And being able to, one, make sure as the educator that you are present, you take your time commitments with them very seriously, you show up to your meetings, you're engaged, you're prepared. Mm -hmm. And then that also, when you build that relationship with those parents up front, that gives you the opportunity to have that open communication with them because they know that they believe that you are there and wanting the best for their children. So they can step back a little bit if that's what you need from them. Mm -hmm. If you are also the person who is setting up those meetings, you're being very flexible in terms of scheduling. So that if a parent only has a certain time in the uh, time during the day that they're able to meet with you and you're able to make that happen for them because you care that much about the success of their child, mm-hmm. I feel like they are so much more open and welcome to your suggestions, whether that is we need you to be more involved or we need you to be less involved. Yeah. Um, but I do think that relationships with families is definitely the foundation of success. And mm-hmm. it's not that you can't be successful if it doesn't exist, but I think your likelihood of being successful is greatly increased when you do have the support of the family. Yeah, especially when you know, the parents, now that they're home with the kids, need to make sure that the kids are on task. It's almost like the classroom management extends into the home and you only see what you can see on camera. And that's the other thing I wanted to get your perspective on as well is just issues around access and the digital divide where many times the virtual instructor is gonna be getting limited inputs and won't necessarily know why. Do you provide any guidance or insight into how to manage those types of interactions where students are not showing up or students are are not on camera or drifting? That topic is coming up a lot. Do you provide any perspective on that? It is coming up a lot. And there is still a lot of data behind all of this too that's supporting. And of course, since this is all so new and everybody's going through this experience together as a group, we're learning a lot as we go, both on the family side and the instructor side. What we do know right now is that 93% of US homes with school-aged children are utilizing some form of virtual instruction. 
And there are differences in income levels and what that looks like. So for example, we know the more money a family makes, the more virtual instruction they're utilizing. The less money a family is making, the less likely they are to utilize it, which means it's not that they completely avoid it. It's that they might log in once every couple of days and then they're doing most of their work on paper. And so that does become an access issue. It also is a level of comfort issue. We want to make sure that families feel like, hey, if you are not comfortable with your kiddo showing the background of your home, we understand that. And here are some workarounds. And there are workarounds that could include what if we have, let's create our own background day and everybody gets the materials, they get to create a little special spot in the home that's just for them. Mm -hmm. It's up against a wall. It gives them a sense of privacy, security, their own desk space, perhaps. And that's one way we can address things like that. But there is definitely a lot of information out there showing that virtual instruction as it stands right now, it's not having the impact that we would hope it had. And I do think a lot of that is because one, the delivery was done so quickly. It was not something that we had time to plan for or think through. But as it's coming out, we are seeing more and more why a need for something like NVTA exists. Because mm-hmm. right now, what we are seeing is that there are districts all across the country where students are failing about two to three times more than they would any other year. For example, in New Mexico, more than 40% of their middle school and high school students are failing. In Houston, mm-hmm. 42% of students earned an F in the first grading period of this school year. St. Paul, Minnesota, nearly 40% of high school students have Fs, which is more than double. So what we know is that we need some common language. We need to set some expectations. We need to address issues of access and equity. Mm -hmm. And all of that comes with school districts coming together and agreeing that something like NBTA in which we could create that common language, create those expectations and hold teachers accountable is what's going to help us turn this around for our children, which at the end of the day, that's what we're doing. We're doing all of this to benefit the learning experience of our children. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine the teacher education programs are not necessarily equipped to specialize in virtual instruction. It probably depends, but a lot of the traditional curricula for getting certified as a teacher Maybe you spend a session on virtual classrooms, but it's not necessarily an area of focus, at least historically. Are you seeing that begin to shift? We're hoping to. We've got co-eds right now that are about to graduate in the next six months to four years, and they are not spending a lot of time in the virtual instruction world. Not to say that's not going to change, but right now, what we've also decided is we've created a professional development program that's absolutely free. Anybody can log in right now at virtualteacherassociation.org. Go online, take our professional development course. We expect it takes one to three hours to complete, and you are going to start to get your feet wet with what are those best practices? What does the common language look like? What can I do as a virtual instructor, whether I'm P12 higher ed or the corporate world, so that I can have a better understanding of what expectations are and how to shift my learning approach from what I'm used to doing with the traditional in-person classes. Mm -hmm. So we are starting to make some headway in that. And we feel like that professional development course that's for free is definitely the first step. We also do offer a certification course. So we are hoping to see that partner with more universities across the country. Right now we are accredited through Adams State University in Colorado. So if you're getting a graduate degree there and you take this course, it'll count for three hours. But we are hoping to see more programs like that. Yeah. And how do you see this playing forward? When we're recording this, I believe the first vaccinations in New York City are happening today, which is hopefully a sign that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. 
And it is exciting, but it is also intriguing for those of us who are trying to think about the future of education, the future of learning, Mm -hmm. how much of the virtual instruction will stick and how much of it will go away is something that a lot of people have different uh, perspectives on. What's your perspective on that? Absolutely. So at this point, we've been doing virtual instruction as a country for approximately nine months. And although the numbers are not looking that great in terms of the quality that we're producing with it, I think what it did do is it let people know that this is possible. Something that we thought we would forever have would be in-person school at your traditional school building. And when we were forced into something new, everybody's like, oh, wow, it can happen. It's not happening the exact way that we would hope for it at this point in time. But now we've learned that it's a possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, What we're also learning is the people who are struggling the most, of course, are our students who are special education and English language learners. Mm -hmm. But what, again, that tells us is the students who are continuing to be successful in this are probably liking it because other data shows that virtual instruction requires 40 to 60% less time to learn than traditional classrooms because students are learning at their own pace, Mm -hmm. which is pretty phenomenal. They're also able to retain 25 to 60% more material when learning online. So again, these stats are for the students who this is really working for. Just so much of the workforce right now where they're like, hey, we've discovered we can work from home. We don't have to go into the office. They're starting to see that there are other ways to do things and I feel like That's going to be what we see with education, especially for those higher performing students. And of course, we want the equity. We want the access for everybody. But when we talk about the vaccines coming out, who's going to be showing back up to those classrooms again? We're hoping it's going to be the students who need it the most. And then we're also hoping that we put things in place to give them the same options so that they have the same outcomes, whether they're in person or whether they are learning virtually. Yeah. Any perspective on the flex or hybrid versions of instruction, which ultimately, I imagine there'll still be some flavor of online instruction Mm -hmm. post-pandemic is the way I'm anticipating this to to play forward. Certainly in the professional space, work from home is a thing. So I, I don't expect office life to be the same on the other side. I think there's some aspects of P through 12 uh, and higher ed that'll probably revert back, but it's likely going to be a blend. Mm -hmm. And there's been some research uh, in these initial nine months you're describing where folks have been blending online and offline instruction. Do you have any experience or perspective with that? Of course. Again, we believe that every family should have the opportunity to make their own choice. I think choice is huge right here. If you feel like that your students are best served in a virtual instruction, which is our goal is to make virtual instruction as good as, if not better than in-person instruction, we absolutely believe that choice should still be on the board for you, even when in-person resumes. If that also looks like, hey, we want our kid to go in and play for the school basketball team, but we want them to do algebra at home, Mm -hmm. let's make that happen as well. I do think that there is a place for hybrid instruction. There are some courses like your athletic courses or a band that you want people to get together. You want your students to be able to build the camaraderie, build the relationships, build those social skills and be around their peers in that sense. When we're talking about course subjects, we're talking about subjects that can be completed independently. Absolutely give them the opportunity to do them online if you feel that's the best way your child can be served. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's going to open up opportunities, I guess, for genuinely differentiated instruction, as long as the educator and the instructional design and all the different pieces can come together. So I can understand the, the problem space that you're diving into and the need that you're looking to respond to. And then if folks want to learn more about what you're doing, where should they go? Sure. Please do check us out at virtual 
teacherassociation.org. And that's where you can download the free rubrics. There are 22 of them and they're divided out into five domains. You can also check out that free professional development course. You can find a link to our book there as well. We would love to have you check that out. It's only $9.95. It's available as a digital ebook or paperback either way mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. Amazon. But yeah, and then social media, of course. You can find us on all the social media channels or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, find us. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and then what do you see on the horizon? What's a good scenario in the next, say, two to three years with this initiative that really is jump-started by the crazy 2020 that we've been in? Any perspective on where this might be heading and, and where you'd like to see things head in the next few years? Absolutely. So I can tell you my ultimate goal, because again, that this is something that was prompted by COVID. And so we know we've been moving very quickly, but we're also doing it, ensuring that we have a sense of rigor to make the certification process something that really has meaning and has value and adds to teacher credentials. One way we want to do that, what my ultimate goal is to have all 50 states buy into this as a, something that they would adopt as a certification that is recognized by all 50 states. That's something that we're working towards right now. As we said, it is accredited by a university, but we would love to see it go even further. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and like I was saying, the genie may be out of the bottle too for online instruction. It's been around for many years, but... It, there is a bit of a tipping point that happens once everybody's experienced it. And uh, despite some of the challenges, I think everyone recognizes that there are some genuine opportunities to do more and learn more and be more connected and have your educational life mapped to the rest of your life in ways that are more convenient. If Again, if you look at the response to working from home, you could imagine uh, a similar response, at least among some populations, to schooling from home and wanting to keep a little bit of that in their lives uh, moving forward. So really interesting stuff you're working on, April. And then we always love to get our guests' perspective on what else is happening in the world around us. What's out there in the world that's capturing your imagination these days that you think uh, listeners to a trend spotting show about education uh, might want to hear about? I think what I'm most intrigued by is as we continue to see the relationship between tech skills and soft skills. I feel like there has been a real big push for our students to be very tech savvy over the past five to 10 years. We've been seeing more robotics classes, more computer coding classes, more app development classes. But what's so interesting is when COVID happened and you had all the adults online, we had a hard time figuring out how yeah. do you change that background? How do yeah. I turn my camera on? How do I mute myself? So there was a little bit of a learning curve for the adults to get up to speed with what technology was offering them. We were able to do it clearly. And I think that we probably are seeing the importance of why we need to teach people at a young age how to not just use it, but to grow and adapt with it as time goes on. And that's something that adults need to continue working on is how do we continue to capitalize and leverage the different, the benefits that we have, the advantages that we have through technology so that we don't get left behind. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I feel like the focus on those soft skills that come along with social emotional learning are so important. And I feel like we see adults stronger in that area. Maybe our youth is a little bit stronger in tech. And if we can find a way to merge those two together and help balance that and make a little bit more of an equilibrium, that would probably to serve our nation, our society really well. So I do look forward to continuing to pursue social emotional skill development mm -hmm. with our younger students so that they don't just caught up, get caught up in the tech aspect of it. 
Yeah, it's really it's interesting also if you think about the future of work too, where you're going to need to know how to work together effectively as a team. And a lot of those jobs are, are going to be remote and you're going to have to learn different communication tools and virtual instruction tools in many ways are similar to the types of things people work with every day. We're recording this in Zoom, which is uh, a coin of the realm when you talk about virtual instruction these days. Any perspective on platforms? Uh, you tr I imagine you try to be somewhat platform agnostic, but also understand that some are more prevalent than others. Yes, we for sure are. And there are opportunities through the certification course in which students can, and students in our course can go through and explore the variety. We call them VDS, video delivery systems. Mm. And we talk about how they are compatible with LMS, our learner management systems. Mm -hmm. And there is an opportunity there to explore the differences, determine which is best for you if you have choice or how to integrate what your district is requiring of you and making the most of that. Yeah. Great stuff. I'm always hearkening back to Mr. Rogers. He talks about when something bad happens, look for the helpers. I appreciate anyone who's trying to help teachers who are going through a very difficult time uh, these days. Dr. April Willis and the folks at the National Virtual Teacher Association are doing uh, some great work in that realm. April, thank you so much for joining us. And for our listeners, we'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. Education.